these Baptists, they have a little bit of trouble with liturgy and that. If you were in, I grew up in a, I didn't grow up, I attended, occasionally my mum went to an Anglican church and I used to go there of a Sunday morning and sleep the weekend off and uh, when they did the reading, they would say, this is the word of the Lord. This is the only place where you find God has actually spoken to us. You won't find it anywhere else. It's contained in these scriptures. And so the response, the natural response to us, well, thanks be to God. He didn't leave us in the dark. He didn't leave us without a clue. He didn't leave us just scratching around trying to work out what he's like and how to live. The word of the Lord. So next time Krista reads and she says, uh, this is the word of the Lord, you all with joyful hearts go, thanks be to God. Or not, you know. Hey, I want to add my welcome uh, to Paul's and to Sandy's and uh, and to say welcome to Freeway. How are we all going this morning? We good? Some of us are a little tired. We're nearly there, right? It's like not too far. What are we talking? Two more sleeps? I don't know. I lost count. Um, but you guys are the organised people, right? You must be the organised ones. All your shopping's done. Everybody else that's not here is out running around frantically trying to buy that present for that impossible person or that uh, relative that's got everything, we'll check the roster later to see who those people were and we'll know, uh, you know, who are the organised people and who are the unorganised people. And if they had it came, like Paul said, we, we, we've got their back. They could have just gone up to that table up there and bought a gift and, and solved all their problems. It would have been great. And you know what? You buy a gift from that table And who knows, in eternity, you might bump into someone who has a story, who talks about some random in Australia who bought a goat or a toilet or whatever and it allowed them to live and it allowed them to hear the gospel rather than buying something that's just going to become an item in a garage sale in 10 years' time. So, you know, if you're scratching that table, because, hey, two days to go. Is that right? Two days to go. And we're there. And all the running around and all the putting up lights and all the cooking of food and the buying of presents will be done. And for a few hours, for a few little hours, the world uh, will just stop. And all the problems of the world will be on hold, won't they? And families will set aside their squabbles. And people will seek to be nice toward each other. And we will do our best to be our best so that we can remind ourselves that the world is not such a bad place. That the world is not such a dark place, a broken place. That if we put up enough lights and that if we cook enough like awesome food and we spread enough goodwill and cheer and Christmas cheer... That if we reach within ourselves and unleash, I don't know, the resources of our creative wisdom, our scientific progress, our economic prosperity, we will be able to tell ourselves that the world really is a great place, that it really isn't as bad as we fear it might be. That for a time we can just push out the darkness, push out the brokenness of the world, cover over the cracks for a little bit. Hasn't that what Christmas has become? A time to show that, that this is the case? 
at Christmas that we can participate in, that we can participate in the realising of human need, that we, can, that we can participate in relationships and making sure they're okay and community and love and well-being and comfort and security. This is a feel-good season. You know, Nat King Cole, uh, so I hear I wasn't around when he was writing songs, but he wrote a Christmas carol that captures our contemporary aspirations and sentiment of this season. And even though it was written way back in 1962, back in the dark ages when there were dinosaurs and all kinds of scary things running around, (laughs) our aspirations and our ideas around Christmas haven't waned. If anything, they've become more like this. They've invaded into this space more and more. They've become stronger. And they'll probably sing this song at the Sydney My Music Bowl on Christmas Eve. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. Fa-la-la, la-la-la, la-la. La. Tis the season to be jolly. Don we now our gay apparel. Troll the ancient Yuletide carol. See the blazing Yule before us. Anybody know what a blazing Yule is? It's a log. It's the backlog on the fire. Gather around the cosy fire. Strike the harp and join the chorus. Follow me in merry measure while I tell of Yuletide treasure. While I tell just warm and nice stories. Fast away the old year passes. Hail the new year, lads and lasses. Sing we joyous all together, headless of the wind and weather. Fa-la-la, la-la-la, la-la-la. Our culture around Christmas has drunk deeply of the Nat King Cole Kool-Aid and embraced the notion that Christmas is a time when we can make the world a better place. We can meet the needs of the world through, through cosmetics, through human progress and creativity, the hanging of lights, the, the, the donning, the buying, the wearing of the latest fashions, the singing of seasonal songs, the merriment, food, drink and contentment can all secure and comfort us against the headless wind and weather and can meet our needs, the needs of our souls against the unpredictable, the uncontrollable, the brokenness and the darkness of the world that we encounter throughout the year. Now, listen, I am not opposed to lights and gifts and carols and fires. I love fires. Our Christmas tree went up in October. You know, our kids are like, yeah, let's get this Christmas tree up. We're like, it's, it's winter. Out to where do we go? Some big W, special lights and that. Poor tree's only got four presents under it, which I'm a little concerned about because I put them all there, so I'm kind of wondering <laughs> about myself. <laughs> it's not in my notes. But it's just a, little, just a little push out to the family. I am good with the festive season. But if we're honest, every honest person knows that no matter how much tinsel we put up, no matter how much yuletide stories we tell or sing about, it cannot and never fills up the need of our soul. Nor can it permanently deal with the darkness and brokenness of life, the headless wind and weather. And so what tends to happen as all the lights come down, as all the carols are finished singing, as all the food and drink are gone and all the new and shiny stuff is already beginning to look old and dated, we realise that the same needs that we went into Christmas 
still persist. The day trip to the spa I brought my wife didn't fix our marriage. The meal I cooked didn't heal our family. The fact that I shifted Kmart into our lounge room uh, didn't quench the relentless pursuit of satisfaction. The 400 selfies I took uh, of the festive merriment didn't fill me with a lasting significance. And so Christmas was just hard work to remain the same. And as we head into the new year, we begin to make resolutions to address our persisting needs. I'll go to the gym. I'll take a class. I'll change my habits, my behaviours, my environment. This will all fix my soul with something a little more than fa-la-la, la-la-la, la-la-la. To push back the headless wind and weather, to break the cycle of darkness and brokenness that is always fraying at the edges of life. It's always pushing in on us. That our Christmas lights tend to hide for a little while. You know, when Isaiah wrote the passage that Krista read to us this morning, which has become so familiar to us at this time of year, at least those last few verses have, we sometimes forget, uh, perhaps we do, or don't bother to look to see uh, the environment, to to what environment he wrote that uh, passage into. Into a nation of people who were consumed with trying to heal their distress, uh, fix their social and moral Uh, dissatisfaction and dysfunction Uh, 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 people who were trying to uh, avoid their impending doom and and meet the needs of their society through uh, cosmetic trimmings through yuletide songs and inquiring into the latest trend-setting mediums and spiritualists they were indeed a people living in a land of great darkness which is a Metaphor that the Bible often and quite regularly uses to let us know that there's a spiritual and moral vacuum trying to be covered up, trying to be healed some way. In chapter 8 of Isaiah, God presses in. He laid his fierce hand upon me. He laid his heavy hand upon me. He presses in on Isaiah with a fierce and burning conviction When it comes to our needs in life, wouldn't it make sense to seek God, to take refuge in his disclosed wisdom, to the word, to the law, he says, to his wisdom and promises. But Israel are running around trying to find an answer to their social and moral darkness and brokenness of their day through through trendy ideas and mediums. Their leaders, their culture setters, they are looking to the earth, Isaiah says, to the great intellectuals, mediums, spiritualists, to try and conjure up a solution to their needs. But again and again, they are left with the same persisting issues and problems. They have a great need that can't be met through cosmetics and earthly thinking. And at the beginning of chapter 9, we get one of the greatest refrains of Scripture. Nevertheless, it's written in different ways at different times throughout the Bible. But it's God saying, in spite of, nevertheless, in spite of humanity's willful rebellion against me, in spite of the fact that they constantly attempt to replace me with their cosmetics, with their political ideas, with their social engineering, their sinful ways, trying to heal their soul with the very things that are causing them the problems. Nevertheless, I will remember my promise 
to meet their greatest need. To be reconciled with me. To find their meaning and their deep satisfaction in me. And God is looking at humanity and recommitting himself to our good, to our joy, to our greatest need, to find our joy in him. Nevertheless, nevertheless, where the consequences of sin have brought nothing but darkness and despair, nevertheless, where people have felt the strong hand of my redemptive judgment, judgment in the Bible, uh, environment and circumstances are always used to push people back to God. Nevertheless, the fierce, agitated yearning of my heart that we saw in the book of, in the book of Jonah for the restoration and rescue of my creation, of my people, will see me act in accordance with my promise to deal with their greatest need, to deal with their loss of relationship with me and replacing that with stuff and things. And then we read, a people walking in darkness have seen a great light and that those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice that this light, this, this light, this, this reversal of what has been spoken of, of darkness, does not emerge from within the culture, does not emerge from within humanity. It's not a social construct. It's not a new way of thinking. It's not a new ideology, but rather it dawns over them. The language is that it dawns like the rising sun, that it comes from without and it dawns. It's not conjured up. It's not cosmetic. It comes from an external origin, an existing genesis, an existing origin, and it floods their reality and its transformation is unparalleled. As we read through Isaiah 9, joy, joy like that. There's two great moments of joy in the ancient Near East. The harvest, God's provision, food, and, and actually winning victory in battle. Joy from comfort, joy from safety, freedom from oppression we, we read. The end of conflict, no more wars as this dawns. No more need for walls, for fences, for locked doors. How does this take place? Well, for those of us who are familiar with this psalm, with this uh, passage, we read those familiar words. For unto us a child is born. This is not the first time Isaiah has spoken of the birth of a child with respect to the fortunes of Israel, with respect to the fortunes of his people. In Isaiah 7, Isaiah has said, with connection to a child, that there would be a sign. A sign is something not of the natural order, something you just simply cannot explain through natural causes. It's miraculous. A sign of God's faithfulness to his promise. And this sign would be that a virgin would give birth to a child. Now, this word virgin here refers to someone of marriable age. But in specific contexts, it can also literally mean a virgin. So while a virginal conception is perhaps not in view in this particular passage isn't the main emphasis of what's happening here. 
the prophet's choice of words, the word, the particular word used here, it allows for it. There is a now and a not yet to this passage. There is something that's going to happen now and something that's going to happen in the future in connection to this virgin and this child. It allows for a young woman to get married in the current context and have a child who by the time he's eating curds and honey, the threat in the north, and that's what's going on, Ephraim and Syria are plotting to get together and wipe out Judah. To Judah in the north will be gone. It also allows for a virgin at some future point to give birth to a child to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God with us, uh, this child represents God with us, the threat is gone, or this child is Emmanuel, God with us. No figure in biblical history is given such a name. Or no person, not Moses, not Abraham. Emmanuel, God with us. The title alludes to extraordinary excellence, authority exceeding all others. So the child and its mother are both ordinary and miraculous in their appropriate contexts. Nevertheless, regardless of the context, this child will know poverty and disaster. This child, this, this incredible child will come into the world and know poverty, be born into our own brokenness, will eat curds and honey, which is the diet of a refugee, which is the diet of poverty. The language of the child being born is back here in chapter 9. And this is how this great reversal, this dawning of light will take place. A child will be born. For unto us a child is born. And only on this occasion, there's no accompanying sign. There's just a new phrase. For unto us a son is given. Which is an expression of royalty. Royalty through which the divine promise of God is carried forward. And this idea is reinforced later in the passage when Isaiah says, this child will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and will have no end. Davidic kings are seen as God's agents on earth to lead the people in worship and practice and life before God. They are spoken of as being begotten. That when they become kings, they hold a new relational position with God, like that of a son and a father. God speaks to the king as a father would speak to his oldest son. The son, therefore, is positionally the heir of all of God's authority and power. That is what a king is to do. That is what this child will be. That's what lies in this expression of a child is born, a son is given. This child is born a king, not made one. He is at his birth both human and has both human and divine authority. This child then, described in human terms, this child then is now moved on to be described in human terms that, that don't apply to normal... Long drive home yesterday. It's described in divine terms that don't apply to humans. I want to get that around the right way, don't we? No matter how grand or how arrogant a king in ancient Near Eastern history is, they would never be spoken of like this. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, this child. So now this child whose rule and reign is one of great reversal of darkness, 
and meeting the needs of, of the nation that, that don't just emerge from within but comes from and about, dawns over the earth, is described as having not a derived authority like a king would be given, but is described as having the very authority of God themselves has the qualities only used to describe God. Only God is called Wonderful Counselor. This child will have a supernatural source of wisdom. This is incredibly good news for those who need guidance, those who come into relationship with this child to need guidance. This child is called Mighty God. He is divinely strong and powerful. Wonderful news for the weak. This child is Everlasting Father. How is it that a child is a father? The word means source. Is the father is the source of unending care and comfort to the lonely and the marginalised. This child at his birth is Prince of Peace. He is the restoration of broken relationships, of bringing healing across all lines, of reassurance to those who feel the pain and the loneliness of relational loss. Even at Christmas. What child is this that Isaiah speaks of? How will this child possess this unique nature that establishes this great kingdom of reversal that dawns, that breaks into the darkness and the brokenness of humanity? Well, at the end of the passage, Isaiah tells us the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. It will not come about it will come about because of the Lord's passion, his desire, his zeal to meet the needs, the deep needs of people who would otherwise choose to live in darkness, who would otherwise continue on their selfish self-destruction, who have shown that they trust their own foolish ways, who have shown they trust their own wisdom, their own cosmetic surgeries over God's wisdom. The zeal of the Lord will bring about this great reversal, will bring about healing this great need. In Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, we read about the birth of another child, the Christmas child, Jesus, who was born to the Virgin Mary, a peasant girl who eats curds and honey, who lives in poverty, along with her common, and all chippies are common, husband, Joseph. Poverty. Both Luke and Matthew record for us that this miraculous situation is explained by an angelic messenger, an evidence of something unique taking place, not of human origin, not of human genesis. Angels are rare in the Bible. They really are. They only turn up when redemptive uh, work is taking place, when God is doing something of a redemptive nature. Both Mary and Joseph are told that this child is the work of God via the Holy Spirit, that the power of the Most High has overshadowed Mary and the child is of divine origin and human flesh will be born. The child has come about because of the, the zeal of the Lord. This child is the incarnation of God's promise. And Matthew points out to us the fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke of, that a virgin would give birth. And that this child, people would call him 
Emmanuel. God with us. People would recognize this child as God in the flesh. Matthew is saying that the promise is greater than anyone could have ever imagined and that it has come true, not just figuratively, not just metaphorically, but this promise out of Isaiah that took place 750-odd years earlier has literally come true in the Christmas child. This child is God with us because the human life growing in Mary is the miraculous work of God. It is how God veils himself in flesh to come, to draw near to us. But for now, Mary and Joseph are to call this child Jesus, which means to save, to rescue, to redeem. And the angel explains the purpose of this child, to rescue and to save from the powers and the effects of sin. He will save people from sin. This child is unique in that it has not come to put forward a new philosophy, a new political order. He has not come to secure economic prosperity or military might. He has come to meet a deeper need, our greatest need, the need of the taking away of sin. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace has come to deal with the brokenness of humanity at its very root of all that causes uh, peace to be stolen, comfort to be robbed, sin. Roy Lessing, the man behind the day spring cards, who's probably responsible for the sanitising of scripture, but we'll let him off the hook for that because he makes this useful remark. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been for technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been for money, God would have sent an economist. But since our greatest need is forgiveness, God sends a saviour. Here is how Christmas meets our deepest need. It doesn't paint over things with cosmetics. It exposes that we are irreparably broken and that unless something not of our own resources, unless something far greater than us comes, dawns, comes into our darkness, into our brokenness, we can never be healed. We can never have this deep need within us met. Christmas is far more confronting and far more wonderful than we could possibly ever imagined. It's not mere sentimentality or yuletides. It is the meeting of our greatest need to be reconciled back with God. This child is both divine and human and breaks into human history and, he, and dawns on human history in both the extraordinary and supernatural and the ordinary and normal. For unto us a child is born into poverty, into obscurity, into human need. For unto us a son is given, a royal son, a peasant and a divine king, both at his birth, born and sent. Why? To rescue, to heal, to do for us what no amount of Christian Christmas lights will ever do, to deal with our sin. The activity of trying to replace God with with lights and and human ideas that only leave us more enraged, that only leave us more empty, more needy, 
with more longing rather than satisfaction. At Christmas, God became flesh and dawned and dwelt and lived in our experience of darkness and brokenness. He did not consider it too lowly a thing. He he is a holy God who doesn't consider it too lowly a thing to experience the life we experience. And he is a holy God who does not consider seeing our brokenness just something that can be swept away, but rather something that he must come and deal with. Christmas tells us that we have a need, that we are too morally ruined to meet, to be pardoned. We keep up with this constant cosmetic repair of it, but we can't achieve it. This need is met in the arrival of this child Jesus who gives himself for us. Jesus, the child of Christmas, is the salvation of God, the great need meter. Christmas does not take place merely to let us know that God exists. It takes place to tear down the barriers that sin has built between God and people. Christmas is where God says it's time for sin to be dealt with. And I am here to deal with it in a way that will not crush you, in a way that will not overwhelm you, but in a way that will draw you near to me. At Christmas, Jesus came near to be our sin bearer, to live a life as a human that would qualify him to die for sin, which is the penalty of sin. To die for our sin, the divine, in place of the human, the perfect for the broken, his life for ours, to flood our lives with this great reversal. Why? So that we can draw near to God, so that we can have in our lives a wonderful counsellor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace, as the core, as the centre of our lives, of our existence, satisfying us to the degree that we no longer need to try and heal ourselves. We are reconciled with God. So we don't merely sing, deck the halls, la-la-la, la-la-la, la-la-la. We've sung it already. We sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumphs of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. And then this, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. This Christmas, as we enjoy the lights and the food and the festivities, let us see behind these cosmetics. Let us see behind these things the real message of Christmas and how Christmas meets our greatest need, the healing of the soul through the gift of God himself on our behalf. The whole point. The whole point of Christmas is that we would find in Jesus, the Christmas child, born a child, a son given to us, a replacement for all that leaves us in need. Hey Merry Christmas team, looking forward to seeing you on Christmas Day.
And I promise you, it will be sure. <laughs>